By the way, I'm glad you're 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 better. I'm Thank glad you. it only lasted a day. You're probably really the only am. one at CNN that's glad. No, 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 no. We're not. The rest of them are all lying about me taking horse medication. <laughs> we should talk about that. That bothered you. It should bother you too. They're well, lying I, at your network about people taking human drugs versus drugs for it, veterinary. It, calling it a horse dewormer is not a flattering thing. I get it's that. It's a lie. It's a lie on a news network, it, and it's a lie that's a willing. That's that's a lie that they're conscious of. This is not a mistake. Yeah. They're unfavorably framing it as veterinary medicine. Well, the FDA put this thing out. You saw that. Did you see that thing that the FDA put out? What did the FDA put out? <laughs> it was a tweet, and it was snarky. I admit it. They said, you are not a horse, you are not a cow. Stop taking this stuff or something like that. Why would you say that when you're talking about a drug that's been given out to billions and billions of people, a drug that was responsible for one of the inventors of it making the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Prize in 2015. 15, yeah. Yeah, no, a, a drug well, that has been shown to stop viral replication in vitro. You know that, right? I, I, Why would they lie and say that's horse dewormer? I can afford people medicine. <laughs> this is ridiculous. It's just a lie. I don't think anyone is thick. But don't you think that a lie like that is dangerous on a news network when you know that they know they're lying? You know that they know that I took medicine. Like, here it is. This is ivermectin. You got this it with it right you. here. Somebody gave it to me. All right, hang on. I, I, do see, you, the, the thing is, we're, we're, we're like going so fast. Like, I feel like I'm missing. I'm missing. Do you think I want that to, that's a problem that your news network was not, lies? Well, I don't. I don't. Dude, I mean, what did they say? They lied what did and they said say? I was taking horse dewormer. First of all, it was prescribed to me by a doctor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Along they with shouldn't have said a it was bunch of if, other if medications. Was, if you got a human pill because there were people that were taking it the veterinary medication and i you're not obviously you got it from a doctor so that it shouldn't be called that ivermectin can be a very effective medication for parasitic disease and as you say it's probably you know i think what a quarter billion people have taken it around the world more, i get that way more so way more can, billions can, of people have taken it can i just come back to the one i want to talk about I, two, no, no, two, no, no, two no, things no. on you the ledger to, you have before we get to that does it bother you that the news network you work for out and out lied, well, just outright lied about me taking horse dewormer. They, they they shouldn't have said that. Why did they do that? I don't know. You didn't ask? You I, didn't think that was your, did, you're the medical guy over there. I didn't ask. I should have asked before coming But they coming did it with podcast. such glee. He did say something about ivermectin that I think wasn't actually correct about CNN and lying, okay? Ivermectin is a drug that is commonly used as a horse dewormer. So it is not a lie to say that the drug is used as a horse dewormer. I, I, I think that's important, and it is not approved for COVID. Correct? That's right. That's correct. It, it, it is not approved for COVID, and you're right. I mean, the FDA even put out a, a statement saying, you know, basically reminding people, it was a strange sort of message from the FDA, but that said, you're not a horse, you're not a cow, stop taking this stuff, is essentially what they said, referring to ivermectin. Now, I think what, what Joe's point that is... That has been approved for humans, and, but not necessarily for COVID, right? Yeah. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth is not exactly what you saw on that CNN clip. And unfortunately, in most news stories that have aired recently regarding repurposed drugs like ivermectin. Why is that? Uh, why is the truth 
about a medicine that has saved thousands of lives in this pandemic being suppressed. Why are medical doctors that have observed the safety and effectiveness of this drug being attacked for speaking about it? Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm the creative director of the FLCCC Alliance. I'm an old reporter and editor, and um, this bothers me. And tonight, I'm joined by the FLCCC's own Dr. Pierre Corey, who's going to tell you what has happened to this group for speaking out about this drug and its effectiveness, speaking, telling the world about a treatment that works that saves lives. We will be joined by two award-winning investigative reporters, Mary Beth Pfeiffer and Michael Capuso, who is also the author of two New York Times bestselling books. They have been covering this pandemic from the very beginning, and they know the hell that they've experienced in trying to get the truth into print. But you're going to hear not just the trouble, but what they're all doing about it. So yes, we're also gonna take your questions about it. We're gonna start with your favorite doctor, Dr. Pierre Corey. Pierre, please tell everybody what's been going on. Yeah, hey, um, so yeah, we um excited to have uh, Mike Capuzzo and Mary Beth Pfeiffer, two um, really uh, terrific journalists who've you know, been on this story, been on the story of the FLCCC and, and of Ivermectin and really repurposed drugs since the beginning. Um, and so, <clears throat> I'm happy to talk to them about, uh, we're going to address censorship tonight. Um, I also want to put that censorship that they've seen firsthand in a little bit of context. So I'm going to share my screen. So I just put some slides together. It's kind of last minute, but um, I am writing a paper with someone else, uh, kind of a, almost like a legal document because they're a lawyer, really just detailing the worldwide campaign, um, which stretches across countries, agencies, uh, nations, uh, to suppress really repurposed drugs. It's, it's not just ivermectin. It's really those of uh, prominent repurposed drugs. Now, who, who would want to do that? Why would anyone want to um, suppress or censor good information about repurposed drugs, right? Repurposed drugs are those that are off patent. They've been approved for other uses. And then you might find that they actually work in some novel disease or in a new indication um, and those are anathema to pharmaceutical companies, as we know. That's absolutely uh, one of the main sort of uh, marketing and profit uh, behaviors of pharmaceutical companies is really to destroy repurposed drugs. And they've been doing this for decades. Um, the, where it becomes unconscionable um, is that they're doing it in a humanitarian crisis and in a pandemic. And if you want to look at what those interests might be, I've maintained that in the case of ivermectin, and I'll also talk a little bit about hydroxychloroquine tonight, in the case of those two drugs, the, the financial interests that are opposed to those uh, drugs succeeding or their efficacy being recognized is really incalculable. Um, just the oral antivirals that are coming in the pipeline, you guys have heard uh, Merck's mutagenic uh, molnupiravir pop its head up, um, but remdesivir sales would be decimated. The long-acting injectables. And by the way, those oral antivirals, they're also doing trials on pro prevention, 
right? So you would take away the prevention market, the early treatment market, um, the antibodies, the monoclonal antibodies, and then we don't even have to talk about vaccines. You're dealing with markets in the trillions of dollars. I don't think in history there's ever been repurposed drugs that stand up against uh, um, uh, a market in the trillions. Um, I think any censorship has to be understood in, in, in the context of what's called disinformation. And so just so you guys know, because everyone hears the terms misinformation, disinformation, nobody really defines them. I've talked about it before. Misinformation is what we're accused of, which is literally, I guess, propagating false information about a medicine um, or a vaccine. If it's truly false, that would be committing misinformation. Um, disinformation is where there are those who are trying to counter correct information because that science or that data is inconvenient to their corporate interests. And there are numerous examples of this over the decades. Disinformation was invented by the tobacco industry, and they practiced it over 50 years, and they were highly successful. To say they wrote the book it is, is not an overstatement. Literally, the tobacco industry, the corporations wrote the book on disinformation, and they largely employed five main tactics. And these have been well described in articles. They call them the fake, the blitz, the diversion, the screen, and the fix. And if you look at these, this is exactly what they do to counter inconvenient science. And if anyone can recognize, just thinking about if you know the story of ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, if anyone sees any similarities in, in these tactics, well, you wouldn't be wrong. But tonight, what I, I, what I would like to talk about is I think that disinformation playbook net needs to expand because in COVID, they've now pushed the envelope. Because what are the new taxes that I've seen, which they didn't use to have before, right? When, when, when the tobacco uh, industry was operating, they didn't have social media and corporate, you know, well, they could, they could definitely uh, uh, manipulate corporate media, but now you have literally censorship. Journals, and the more I'm learning, they've done this for decades, but now they're just so out in the open in what they're doing. They're only publishing things that are against repurposed or, or things that are in favor of non-repurposed drugs. And it's, it's just absurd the way that medical journals have gotten the game. And then you realize just how captured our country is. Even in a pandemic, these government agencies cannot do enough to promote for-profit drugs at the expense of nonprofits. And you'll see these activities uh, all throughout. I have a bunch of slides. I'm gonna go through them quickly because I can't go through them uh, in depth. But just so you know, in the background, if you look at some of the most infamous, infamous examples, the ones in red are just pharma, right? Vioxx, they knew it was causing heart attacks, suppressed it. The brain injury for the NFL, those the most recent disinformation. They went after those signs. They tried to dispel the notion that these poor football players were all dying of, of uh, traumatic encephalopathy. Um, GlaxoSmithKline with, with Avandia. The opioid epidemic. Does anyone remember the opioid epidemic, the one that was before this pandemic? That was completely pharma-induced and hundreds of thousands of lives are lost. They don't care. They don't care if people die. And so um, thing that I think we'll talk about with Mike and, and Mary Beth is that you know, one of the new, this is one of the new things, right? There's this thing called the Trusted Effing News Initiative, right? Look at the partners, Associated Press, Agence France Press, BBC, CBC, European, Facebook, 
Reuters, Google, YouTube, Hindu, Microsoft, the entire effing world is got together because, oh my gosh, vaccine disinformation might interrupt this onslaught of the vaccines. And they've extended that to anything else, right? As you guys know, it's been longstanding that the YouTube, uh, that the social media, they literally will remove anything anything that's even remotely positive with these repurposed drugs. It, it, these, it, it must be because these are so dangerous that people will die if you, if you promote their use. Absolutely absurd. We all know that's absolutely right. The amount of lying that we're absolutely accepting is just crazy. Now, here's the thing I want to talk about is I got to read an advanced copy of this book. It's coming out in, in, in no, on November 15th. Um, I think this is a game changer. I think the world before this book and the world after will be completely different. Um, this book is absolutely tremendous. And it traces, it traces all of the things that any of us who's been a close student and a critical thinker of how this pandemic has, has been mismanaged and how many untold deaths have been happening and how it's out of control, you'll get to see how and why all the major actors, they're all acting not with scientific interests. They have other financial and policy interests. And it's very, very clearly spelled out. There's 2,200 references. And the most disturbing is actually the hydroxychloroquine chap uh, chapter. And, and in this book, it literally goes through what they did. So if, if, if we've been fighting against the ivermectin suppression, Please know that there are those who fought with hydroxychloroquine. They literally killed hydroxychloroquine last year. That was the first repurposed drug that threatened those massive profits of all of them. And in this book, it's very well detailed what happened. And, and essentially, this is one of the safest drugs. It's used every Sunday across Africa against malaria. People take it, have been taking it for decades, billions and billions of doses. It was already known to be effective in the first coronavirus pandemic. They knew it. And they started to know this early on. And that's when the war on hydroxychloroquine started. The amount of insane actions that are described in this book. I mean, I, I didn't even know this. I, in fact, I, I'm still like trembling after reading this chapter. But in January of 2020, the French government, after decades of having it as, as over the counter, they made it prescription only, followed by Canada. Then there's reports across many of these countries, massive quantities of hydroxychloroquine being destroyed because of improper importation. And then the US government started to stockpile it. And then they restricted it to the hospital. And I still remember that. Last year, when we were fighting this in the spring, the country started to be overrun. I remember thinking, what the hell are they doing? This is, if this is going to work as an antiviral, why would they restrict it to the hospital? I couldn't understand it then. I couldn't understand it now, but it was amongst many of these non-scientific actions. But now you know, there's a reason why they restricted it to the hospital. They did not want it to be used early. They did not want it to be used in early treatment. You know why? Because it was going to be effective. And if you think this is conspiracy, it's extremely well documented. Then what they did is some of the most criminal acts that that I think history will ever be able to record. But as you guys know, the Surgisphere scandal, well, they literally, these high impact journals allowed an obviously corrupt data set. 
where almost hundreds of independent scientists within days of publication said, what are you talking about? This data set is corrupt. It's fraudulent. It's made up. There's tons of inconsistencies. How could you let this be published? But you know what? It was one of the first nails in the coffin. The WHO financed almost 20 studies, 17 studies to be exact, on hydroxychloroquine. In each and every study, the research funders and those controlling the research agencies were the same. And guess what they did? They used near lethal toxic doses on the daily basis in all of those trials, and they only allowed hospital trials to be done. No early patients. Fauci canceled and stopped early treatment trials of hydroxychloroquine. That's all I got. Read the book. I got to tell you, the hydroxychloroquine chapter makes ivermectin pale in comparison. When we talk about censorship, although we've been censored mostly because our identification of ivermectin, I do want to remind people, we're not an ivermectin organization. Our primary mission is to develop protocols that are effective. All of our protocols are combinations of therapies using sound science, science pragmatic advice, and risk-benefit uh, analyses. And yet, however, because ivermectin is central, we have gotten killed, and you guys know that since the beginning. Facebook, removing of posts. We've been in lockouts times too. We've had uh, posts removed. We've got deep platform from Medium, LinkedIn, Vimeo, uh, YouTube, numerous videos just keep getting ripped and ripped and ripped. No matter what, it's a testimonial, a lecture, no matter what, it just gets taken down. Our newswire we were using for, uh, for press releases, we were banned from using the newswire. PayPal, as you guys know, last week took us down. They don't want us, and us pro, uh, processing payments. We've been account locked on Twitter. We're waiting to get whacked off Twitter. And then recently, our fundraising store for the FLCCC, they ended our user agreement. God forbid they wanted to process the payments uh, and sales of, of t-shirts to raise funds for our, our little organization. And it's not just us. Many others have been attacked. Anyone speaks truth and honest uh, uh, recounting of science, especially around repurposed drug. And I call out Dr. Bean in particular particular. He's a medical educator, uh, unparalleled medical educator with a very popular website. He teaches on any number of topics. But because of his interest in ivermectin and his lectures on ivermectin, he got all of them demonetized. And just last week, literally, they went after his business and his CME company, which accredits all of the uh, medical education credits that he offers to all of his subscribers. They actually ended their agreement. So he cannot even offer those right now. And so his business is now threatened. Even John Campbell, who does these popular videos, he's, been, he's had uh, videos removed, although he's now extremely careful. Um, I could go on and on, but the medical journals is ridiculous. If you're playing along at home, the amount of peer-reviewed studies that have been retracted, including our peer-reviewed study, it passed peer review with three senior scientists, retracted, unprecedented in our careers. Never have we seen a peer-reviewed study retracted. Tesslori's review at Lancet Respiratory, retracted. Uh, 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 Puya Deganis, he just wrote one on mechanisms of action of ivermectin. It's a basic science paper, and it got published in Nature, retracted. Um, uh, Peter McCullough's recent paper on myocarditis, retracted. Uh, uh, Flavio Caragiani of the unbelievable world-changing proxalutamide trials went to New England Journal of Medicine, passed peer review, retracted. They told him they would not publish. Carvalho had papers held by JAMA. The list goes on and on. And the only things that you'll see published in those are those that are actually 
They're not even negative trials. They all show benefits, but because they're not statistically significant, the conclusions are written, don't, you should not use them. You have to look at these papers and how they're written. It's literally corruption sitting in front of us. This was the article about Aus getting uh, retracted. This was Tess's. And then what do they do? Remember, if you go back to those first five tactics of the fix, the blitz, the fake, they also, not only do they, they, they try to get rid of unfavorable science, they also just rush in and they publish fraudulent stuff. So everybody's now citing this. Uh, this is a very high impact uh, a journal, Journal of Clinical Infectious Disease. And then you have the Cochrane Journal. Both of these are fraudulent studies. They literally picked apart and only looked at a tiny little subset, the most unfavorable or the least favorable, I should say, because none of them are unfavorable. And then they come out with inconclusive. And then the only ones that get published are these really failed trials with very little outcomes. And even though they showed benefits, they were so underpowered, they couldn't do it. And so literally, it's just the journals are trying to censor, manipulate, and, and distort the science. And, and then the other thing, and some, one of the things that's driven me nuts, if you guys have known for eight months now, when you look at the WHO and the NIH in their guidelines, you know what they do? They don't even look at the prevention trials. They just say, we have not reviewed as if that's like, it's sunny out today, or I'm going to go for a walk. We have not reviewed any studies of ivermectin and prevention of COVID-19. If you look at this forest plot, you've never seen a drug with this mat much massive benefits um, um, with that much consistency and reproducibility, re reproducibility, and yet they don't look at it. And that's all they say. They don't say, they don't do what they do with the other stuff, which is, oh, small trials, uh, poor quality, this, that, and the other thing. They just don't even look at it because God forbid they did. And then they also refuse to include observational control trials, which is a departure from decades of guideline development. And they keep asking for well-conducted RCTs that only they will fund, only they will design, and only, only they will conduct when they are ready. And so they are deferring and delaying. And this, this is just absolutely a global campaign. Even Merck early on said, we have no intention of conducting a clinical trial. No shit. Of course, they're not going to study ivermectin. There's no money to be made for it. They explicitly refused the request of Nobel Prize winner Satoshi Omura to do a trial because of the decade of antiviral studies uh, showing efficacy, but they said no way. Um, they even put out a, a PR statement, which is going to be historically uh, criminal, uh, basically in, in February, again, doing exactly the same stuff they did against hydroxychloroquine. And then you guys know in the last two months, just the insanity. Once the public and the doctors started hitting you know, 90,000 prescriptions a week, they started the guns of August, which I call Farmageddon. And they started with this misinformation around poison control centers, which Mary Beth is going to talk to us, which was so easily disproved. And then they bring in the agencies with these, these idiotic bulletins and memos. None of them have any teeth to them. All they say is, you shouldn't use, you shouldn't use, it's not approved. That's saying, that is a lie. Saying that the FDA hasn't approved is a total lie. FDA will never approve it. They're not being asked to approve it. No one has the money to get them to approve it, and they don't need to approve it. It's off-label use, and it's supposed to be encouraged in normal times. And then I'll just leave you with this. Poison control centers um, are reporting that their calls are spiking in places like Mississippi and Oklahoma uh, because some Americans are trying to use an anti-parasite force drug called ivermectin uh, to treat coronavirus, to prevent contracting coronavirus. Um, what would you tell someone uh, who is considering taking that drug? 
don't do it. There's no evidence whatsoever that that works and it could potentially have toxicity, as you just mentioned, with people who have gone to poison control centers because they've taken the drug at a ridiculous dose and wind up getting sick. There's no clinical evidence that indicates that this works. There's no clinical evidence that indicates that this works. Well, you're listening to the medical misinformationist in chief. I mean, that's just insane. And then now we have to deal with these idiot pharmacists who are like trying to, they think they're like trying to some uphold some sort of, oh, I don't even know. I can't even discuss it anymore, but just, you know, the agency is just their failure to recommend. It's absurd. It's just been absurd. We've been calling this for months. They approved ivermectin for scabies with 852 patients and 10 RCTs. For strong is 500 patients and five RCTs. And right now they got 32 randomized, 16 double blind, and somehow they can't seem to recommend. The IDSA absurd in their history that only 16% of their recommendations even have one randomized study. They can't seem to recommend. The NIH has any number of recommendations they could use. It doesn't have to be a 1A or a 2B or a 3C. It can be anything. It could be a C2B. If they did that, the floodgates would open and they know that. So what are they doing? They're sitting on neutral. The WHO, they could give a conditional, they could give a conditional recommendation. They do not. Instead, they push remdesivir, which is failing and has a trend to harm in, in independent trials and shows benefit in pharmaceutical conducted trials. This is exactly what pharma does. High cost, high toxicity, minimal studies needed for approval, while repurposed drugs get nothing. And, and then this was uh, sent to me today. Just look at the studies needed to approve, right? Budesonide gets approved with one study, 1,700 patients. Remdesivir, the monoclonal antibodies. But yet ivermectin, 47,000 patients in 63 studies can't seem to find approval. Uh, just sadness. And then this system that we're in, this is the country we're living in. These are our leading agencies and how they want us to treat COVID. Don't use anything to prevent. Don't take anything as an outpatient. Well, now they have monoclonals, but otherwise don't take anything. Wait till you turn blue. And when you get there, we'll give you a tiny dose of steroids and remdesivir and watch you die. And then long haul, please go to your local academic medical center so you can suffer endless referrals to idiotic subspecialists who know nothing about how to treat this disease. I'm just going to stop there. I'll go forever. This is the last slide. And then voila, with, after all of this insanity they were living in and watching for a year, suddenly we have, you know, the holy grail has arrived and a mutagenic drug that they're going to unleash on the world population at incredible profit uh, suddenly gets unleashed. So there you go. Now you know why censorship is here. And then maybe we here, can you've got to you've got to talk about the safety record of ivermectin, how many people yeah. have taken it over how many years and what there were 12 deaths. Yeah. In what, 40 I mean, years? There's actually never been a proven death associated with ivermectin, even in massive overdoses. And so um, it's it's one of the world's safest drugs, and it's known as that. But um, that's all part of the disinformation. They want us to believe that it's dangerous. So it's insane. And although we don't recommend animal medicine, uh, we, we can't and we shouldn't. Um, we've been trying to get our agencies to guide human uh, forms to be used. But, you know, it is it remains a simple fact that ma massive portions of the world have saved their lives in COVID with animal uh, veterinary formulations. And it's just sad that they've had to resort to doing that. But it has been effective.
anyway, Mike, Mary Beth, I probably took too much time. Here, hi. Hey, hi. good evening, sir. And Mary hey, Beth. Mary Beth did that story and did the investigation on the, uh, how many reports came in that launched the story on the, uh, on the animal ivermectin that this is horse well, paint? It started with 70% of all calls to the Mississippi Poison Control Center were for livestock ivermectin. And of course you use the term poison control center, everybody's calling about being poisoned. Um, the problem was in this alert that was put out by Mississippi, 70% um, of what, you know, it could be 70% of 10, which is seven reports. Um, if it had indeed, we figured out, been 70% of all the calls, they would have been inundated with about 800 calls. Anyway, over a period of weeks, we pressed them, we pressed them, um, how many calls? And it turns out they received eight. Two calls were asking for information about ivermectin and four calls were actually related to ingestion of the livestock formulation. One person was told to seek further help. So um, it was, you know, a, a big um, screw up. Um, they had, and it might have been uh, an innocent um, mistake by the Mississippi State Health Department in that um, when they said 70% of calls, they were referring to 70% of all ivermectin calls, not of all calls received by the um, Poison Control Center. But, you know, be that as it may, they didn't give the actual number and they um, let it go as, you know, making it sound that it was a lot more than it was. But, you know, beyond that, I would say that the media played such a huge role in just repeating this lie over and over again to the point that it was in the New York Times, not once, but twice. I got them to correct it the first time but this shows how this kind of misinformation lives on forever in the archives and the online stories of newspapers around the world. And it's still out there, it's very much alive that 70% of people took this um, drug, you know, the livestock formulation and were poisoned. And um, so the, even the New York Times repeated that error and had to make a second. Um, and every comedian did the same thing. Yeah. Um, I'm very disappointed in my profession, to say the very least. It is not living up to its obligation to protect the public trust, to ask questions about the information that government puts out. And there's so many, you know, things that I could cite, you know, the, the two deaths that were reported from uh, or linked to ivermectin in New Mexico. There's no evidence that those two people died from taking ivermectin. Now that story is far and wide. I looked up at least a dozen links from, you know, London to, you know, Los Angeles on it. 
And um, it, it's kind of very squishy language, you know, um, they've been linked to ivermectin, but they also, say, they also, you know, pointedly will even say these people were poisoned by ivermectin. And they quote the state health department in New Mexico, but there's not much specifics, there's not many details. And when you kind of drill down and you read all the um, stories, you see basically that the story was that the people delayed getting treatment for COVID because they self-medicated with ivermectin. One person died from kidney failure, which is something that people with late stage COVID die from. Um, but again, that story lives on out there in the, you know, the netherworld. Um, and this is what we're fighting against. I've been reporting on early treatment since March of 2020. And I don't feel quite as beaten down as Pierre does for very good reason. But, uh, you know, I, I feel like I, I open up Twitter or I open up whatever the New York Times and there's just more bad news and more denial of the need for early treatment and the efficacy of some of the existing drugs that we already have. Mike, you've been following yeah. this too. Well, uh, because of the brilliant people on this screen with me, I, I was actually optimistic today and I still feel like there's no way that the repurposed drug revolution with Pierre Corey behind it and, and reporters like Mary Beth is not gonna win eventually. It's just a question of how much hurt before it happens. Um, I got involved in this when um, I heard Pierre speak in, on Mother's Day in 2020, uh, the first time before the Senate, before his ivermectin December, incredible 9, billion, 9 million views about steroids and how steroids were the only, you know, insane that the NIH and the rest of them were denying the use of steroids and Pierre and his colleagues were saving 95% of the people in their ICUs. And the next day I looked for that in CNN and in Fox and in the New York Times and Washington Post and it was nowhere. And I just, that's why I'm here because that level of censorship, I knew something was terribly wrong. It was a huge change in the way the world of the media, you know, despite all their bias left or right or whatever had ever operated. And I started working on a book with Pierre and the FLCC and Paul Merrick and all their colleagues, the history of them, and it's gonna go down in history no matter what else happens and treatment. Um, and I began to, it's just horrifying. The media is the major problem here. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've written a couple of New York Times bestsellers about scientists, about leading thinkers in forensic science and in, and in ocean science. So when I started dealing with Pierre and Paul, I realized my only qualifications as a I mean, I'm a pretty well-known science writer, but my only qualifications as a medical writer is that I'm a hypochondriac. So <laughs> how, how I was going to manage this, I don't know. But these guys are so inspiring, uh, and women, and this whole team behind you. Uh, I, don't, I just think there's no way you can't win. What, what happened was, uh, after seeing all, these, all this propaganda, constant, constant, my wife and I finally started a new publication called Rescue on Substack. And we just proudly published Mary Beth and her friend Linda uh, Bonvi's incredible investigation of the of the FDA uh, cover up or or sort of false you know presentation of the horse medicine uh, uh, stuff, and you know it's the first publication totally devoted to these doctors and their colleagues like Peter McCulloch and the AA uh, SP and so forth and treatments and uh, you know I'm getting such attack from my my friends in the mainstream media. I mean I worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer and Miami Herald for 17 years and have 200 journalism awards, a lot of them due to my wife because we publish a magazine together. And uh, 
It's just unbelievable. I think that if you look at the history of the, the media, I, I mean, I think all of us can see the media are the major problem, the censorship, because if you look at the history, I mean, Paul and Pierre started calling it the censorship pandemic, what, six weeks ago, two months ago, three months ago. And if you look at the history of, of colossal failures, disasters, and you look at the, the basics of that theory, uh, the basics, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Chernobyl, for instance, or the collapse of the Berlin Wall, these things happen when everything goes wrong, and particularly when, so all the backup engines fail, but particularly the overriding principle is that the people on the ground are hit, the people up in the clouds in the ivory tower stop talking to the people on the ground and don't have that knowledge. And obviously that's what's happened here. And that's our big advantage, uh, if that's an advantage. It's sort of a, you know, if you read Malcolm Gladwell's book about David and Goliath, David has a lot of advantages. And we have the truth on our side. This is a, you can't really hide the fact that everybody in the world, this is the most, I think this is the most far-flung uh, social justice, you could call it, or civil rights or populist revolution in history is coming. I mean, how many people does Pierre, Pierre work with around the globe, to patients who are dying and know about this, and it doesn't matter, you know, ask Mary Beth. I mean, the people who write with us, they're on the left, they're on the right, they're libertarian, they're fighting for climate change, they're fighting against climate change. They, they're, they're showing me pictures from libertarians, you know, saying that the government was gonna take over, you know, healthcare in 1960 and now it's happening just like communist Soviet Union. All these people are coming together in a new network that's really powerful. I'll stop now, but I'm optimistic because of the, the remarkable character of everyone that I meet that meets you people and gets involved. We're all in it together and it's going to win. So Mike, you know, you mentioned about <clears throat> writing for Substack now and you know, your Substack, whatever you call it, page, publication, I don't know what, newsletter. Publication, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's excellent. And, but my sense, and I think many people probably who are watching is that you know, to get like legitimate, accurate information, you, you have to go to some independent medium now, right? It, it's got to be like, I mean, it's like the Brett Weinstein's like Joe Rogan, even right. He's somewhat, he's independent. He's on Spotify where there's right. no censorship right. yet. Um, you know, but like, you really have to go behind paywalls, uh, either on Substack or, uh, for instance, like Chris Martinson and peak prosperity. And, and I mean, you just, you just can't seem to, I mean, the Substack's, not, Substack's not a paywall. Substack's free. I mean, you right, can, right. But it's it's. Right. But these are places that are not controlled by corporate media. Right. There's still independence, and and there's no censorship. Right. Right. And then that's actually. Do you get thrown off Substack if you write something unfavorable? Well, it's a it's a, that's going to be a great test. I mean, look what happened to Medium. So far, their business model. They've you know Peggy Noonan wrote in the Wall Street Journal this weekend that there's all these brilliant. Uh, uh, you know, commentators who are against the regime flourishing on Substack. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, Andrew Sullivan and, and others who got thrown off the New Yorker for being not woke enough, and here they are publishing and flourishing. So we right. can only hope that they keep that up. After that, it's just print. It's print. You know, that's the last, just like, you know, Thomas Paine, Common Sense and the Crisis and the Revolution, because they can't stop that without guns. Now, what, what, Mary Beth and Mike, what do you guys know? Like, do, do your, um, colleagues or does, does anyone talk about the trusted news initiative is, is that is that something that it's just in the background because i mean it seems to be the glue that holds all of it together um you know i i have not heard that from colleagues because i'm in this little kind of cocoon alone as a journalist um in this fight against the powers the forces and, you know, as I said, I, I 
been at it for about 18 months now. And it wasn't until early September that I got a lovely email from a brilliant journalist named Linda Bonby, who basically said, and I've been waiting for this kind of email for a very long time, I'm a fellow journalist and I've been reading what you're writing and uh, it really resonates with me and I'm paraphrasing. Um, and you know, this whole thing with the horse paste is wild. There's something wrong with this picture. So we started to, you know, compare notes. Um, we are in such a tiny minority and I am very, very, you know, happy that Michael is thriving and that there are other Substack uh, independent publications that are doing well. That said, I started my first article um, on Forbes in um, March of 2020. I was, I believe, the first journalist in America to report on hydroxychloroquine. I reported on the French study because through my Lyme disease connections, I knew a physician in France who leaked me the study and I wrote the story. I wrote a couple more stories for Forbes, but it was pretty clear that there wasn't this um, uh, dire kind of um, uh, passion to pursue this subject. So I found myself saying, I think I'm gonna go try and write somewhere else. And that's the problem that someone like me finds themselves in. There are very few mainstream outlets for us. I have queried many different publications to try and interest them in what seems like a pretty darn good story. You Here think? We, we, have, <laughs> we have something that can, God forbid I say the word cure early COVID and nobody wants the story. So I wound up writing for a long time for Trial Site News, terrific upstart scrappy little publication yeah. where a lot of great people are really um, writing right now. Um, and God bless them for taking me. Um, but this is the life of the outside the mainstream journalist today, unfortunately. Well, one of our, I just wanted to ask a question because one of the things that you folks know and that I know because I sit on some boards with some journalists at the New York Times and, and other places that are really good people. Um, and the top publications tend to automatically go and report presidents, generals, and again, they're going to report what Fauci says. They're going to report what the FDA says. They're going to report from the public health agencies and the leaders, and that is the information that gets out there. Less so, I think, from the troops on the ground. I was, I'm old enough to remember Vietnam. It wasn't until Walter Cronkite changed the view that they stopped listening to President Johnson and the generals and said, wait a minute, that's not what's happening on the ground. I'm waiting for the Vietnam moment to happen with this pandemic. You think we're anywhere closer to it? Do you think there is any way that can happen? And do you think that all of those pharmaceutical ads that you see on every television station and that you see in all of the print today has anything to do with this. We used to have firewalls. When I was at CBS, you could report on anything, no matter what the sponsor said. 
I'm not sure that there's a firewall well, anymore. That can't be the case anymore because no one will talk about this, period. And and if you look at that, the opening uh, clip that Joyce put together, right? You see Sanjay Gupta slink back to his little hole at CNN, and then you see them again committing uh, just absolute absurdities, right? They want to double down on the fact that it is a horse dewormer. I mean, that's mm -hmm. idiotic. I mean, they're literally acting like complete imbeciles. Literally, they want to go back. But wait, you were right. It is a horse dewormer. No one's talking about horse dewormers here. I mean, I mean, to pretend that that's actually a, a valid conversation to have around ivermectin, it, it's absolutely ludicrous. Ludicrous. Well, and one of the things we have, the other advantage we have is how, how stupid they seem. I mean, you know, yeah. Yeah, it, it, there's nobody knows less about COVID than Dr. Gupta and mainstream journalists. Betsy, just to, adding to your Walter Cronkite, the first person to, to report that was my mentor. Uh, I didn't know him then, I was five years old, but in 1962, David Halberstam was 28 years old and went to the New York Times and went on the ground and reported that the generals were lying, which was new for military reportage. And he had the guts to write it and the New York Times at the time stood behind him. And you're right, that's what we need today. Instead, this is as if the Vietnam War is happening and David Halberstam is staying in Washington and calling Robert McNamara. That's what's happening. Yes. The other advantage we have aside from their stupidity is, can we get that out? Yes, we can. I mean, with Substack, with the right, uh, with the right putting it together the right way and what Mary Beth is doing, we can publish 10,000 stories that aren't being that aren't being published yet and they are the most powerful stories because they're trying to hide it. I mean Pierre talks about it. To me the most awesome one today to this date is Uttar Pradesh and this heroic doctor who's early on in finding out the efficacy with his own trials and so forth and then launches what Pierre an army of 300,000 healthcare workers across 90,000 villages in one of the you know and within five days of working, of giving ivermectin and other things, little kits and testing everyone and doing everything. That, and the WHO is with them with 10,000 field workers. And this is in the Hindu, Hindustan Times and it's in the Indian Times and all this. And you know, this BBC and the rest of them just take it in memory hole it. You can't hide that. My optimism is based on that. We can get people there. We can get TV Mike, people there. Mike, it's even worse, right? Cause uh, you know, I, I put all these slides together for the censorship tonight. And I probably could have kept going. I ran out of time. But that issue that you just brought up, right? So when Uttar Pradesh and that amazing historic uh, program that they put together, right? Like you said, over 70,000 healthcare workers traveling across the state, rapid testing, treating, testing, treating. Okay. And they eradicated, right? Yeah, eradicated. So Hindustan Times, uh, uh, Times of India, they do big articles on it. You can't find the word ivermectin in there. Right. The right. WHO writes a glowing report on the success of Uttar Pradesh. All they talk about is the contact tracing and surveilling. There's one little mention of a treatment kit, no mention of what's in the treatment kit. And it's almost like they didn't treat anything. All they did was like track everybody down and quarantine them. And then, yay, they eradicated it. And, and, and literally you're seeing, you're seeing like primary sources not even be able to talk about ivermectin. Well, I mean, it, that's Reuters says the BBC is the most trusted news outlet in America. I was just researching this today. The biggest BBC network out, uh, bureau outside of um, London is in, is in Delhi. And they have hundreds of reporters and they're in the same building as the Hindustan Times, the Hindustan Times building. And the Hindustan Times writes a story about this on September 10th. And they just, they just you know, scrap it. The, the last report of, of India and COVID from the BBC is in 
April or so, and and it's the whole country and especially Uttar Pradesh is falling apart. It's a crisis, and I there's we can get around that. I mean, Substack is a way to get around it. I mean, you print a million magazines, you ship it around the world to get around it. The stories haven't been told. That's that's the big the big atom bomb we can drop on. The stories have not been told. Not just are they suppressing the science; they haven't told the human told the human stories. Any of them. Any of them. But, you know, the other the point I want to make is like, so so they, they don't talk about ivermectin. Like you said, nobody in major media in the U.S. talks about Uttar Pradesh. You can't even find it mentioned. I mean, that's how you know ivermectin works, right? The, the lengths that they're going to try not to talk about ivermectin or, or show favorable data is insane. But, but I got to tell you, going back to Bobby Kennedy's book, I mean, I, I, I literally like He's able to trade. I mean, he's a lawyer, right? And and he had a he had a lot of support in writing this book. Like I said, twenty two hundred references. The way he weaves the story, and is able to show like the disparate but yet coordinated actions on how they killed hydroxychloroquine. Like now, once you read what happened to hydroxychloroquine, everything becomes crystal clear around ivermectin. Right down to the fact, I'm going to say this: this is another form of censorship is that the NIH, probably because of a year of screaming and my screaming in my testimony, finally felt compelled that they have to study ivermectin, right? So we all know in their sixth round of randomized controlled trials that they funded, notice they did not fund ivermectin until recently, and it's still, it's still glacially approaching a start, right? But now they're gonna study ivermectin and they're doing exactly what they did to hydroxychloroquine. Uh. They are not including people super early. Notice that in remdesivir, somehow they managed to include everyone within five days of first symptoms. But in ivermectin, no, it's seven days. And then they're using a modest dose for only three days, even though there are ministries and trials around the world that use higher doses for five days. And the TOGETHER trial, which went up against the gamma variant with that same dosing regimen, um, although it showed a, a reduction in mortality, wasn't statistically significant, Notice that they're repeating that. So it's it's almost, it's it's clearly, they are trying to create a trial. And do you know how happy the NIH will be when that trial does not show a statistically significant result? I mean, they literally will be able to once and for, for all put the nail in the coffin of ivermectin. And that's what they're doing. And that's why this book has to come out. I think every medical student in the country has to read it. I think every US citizen has to read this book. So you can absolutely see the plays, the multiple actors, the coordination, the nefariousness and the sinister freaking actions of all of these people really with only one goal, which is yes, they want medicines out there but only for-profit medicines. And well, so and I don't know how they go to bed at night, but I think they go to bed at night thinking that they're furthering public health. They're not. They're furthering profits at the expense of public health. And it's just insane. But that's, that's what's going to happen. And that, that's why I think this book is to combat this censorship. You have to get more people criti critically thinking and, and being able to see what's going on. They have to be able to see the censorship and all of these nefarious actions and the FDA tweet with the, you know, uh, stop taking ivermectin y'all and all that nonsense. I mean, it, it, I, that's the only way to combat it because uh, again, the, the substacks aren't gonna do it unless people know to go to the substack to know, to know that's the, the only accurate information is. Well, you know, they, they story, get enough stories, they, they, they'll go to it. You know, it's part of it, it's part of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah the... Uh, <laughs> Just when you to, say, go ahead, sorry. Just to interject and kind of come back to reality a little bit. 
you know, and I talk to regular folks and there's lots of regular folks out here, but they happen to be a little bit enlightened in that they're watching this show. Um, <laughs> uh, so many of them, uh, you know, I've uh, drunk the Kool-Aid, you know, it's, you can't even um, posit another idea, another way to look right. at COVID, um, that we should be treating it that you know, we can ask some questions about efficacy of the vaccines, um, that there should be different articles showing up in the newspaper that give us more information and challenge this very firm dogma that we're, we currently have for, um, for ivermectin and for treatment generally. And you know, Betsy, you brought up Vietnam and you know, TV back then largely made the difference. It was a new way to cover a war. So we were seeing bodies every day on the, the evening news shows. And that certainly um, you know, contributed to that tide turning. Um, and that famous comment uh, about if you lost um, uh, Walter Cronkite, you lost middle America. Um, but what we have today is so total control of the message. Um, yep. It's 24 seven. Um, the advertisements are for vaccines and the news shows are why they're good and why we need boosters. And, and I'm, I have to interject here that to be for ivermectin does not mean you are against vaccines. That's another kind of fallacy, another myth that has been put out there. Um, but you, you put this whole picture together and um, the lies are pretty huge and, and I, I'm not sure when the turning point is gonna be and who's gonna be the, the Walter Cron Cronkite in this. Um, hopefully, you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. can do that, but this also goes back to how this whole thing is viewed politically. Um, Mary Beth, I like, and, and Mike, you brought up, so this analogy, right, is that, because, you know, Mary, when you were talking about how you talk to people and they just, it's very hard to disturb them from, to, to get them to think openly, but I think it begins with the following. If ivermectin worked, then the agencies would recommend it. So how can you claim that it works? Clearly our trusted health agencies would, would recommend it. So there's this implicit and really poorly founded belief in in the authority. I it, I don't know how long they're going to gain that authority. I think that actually that authority will disappear over time. In fact, I think the the construct of those alphabet agencies, the NIH, the FDA, they're they're going to be destroyed at the end of this. But right now they still hold that authority, and so people don't. They just they believe that they would do it if it worked. Now, isn't the analogy, they believe the gen generals and when they found out that the generals were lying, the war changed. So right. we're essentially believing the generals. Right. Yep. And right. as soon as we stop believing the generals, uh, then people are gonna realize, holy shit, we've been hoodwinked and you know we've been lied to, we've been manipulated and we've died. Well, I think that's really well put. I think this is our Vietnam moment, but maybe even bigger because I think another weakness that they, they, they have is uh, if you look at Sanjay Gupta, I don't know about any of you, but my stomach kind of turns when he says, uh, this guy who could have been Surgeon General, when he says, uh, oh yeah, well, it was pretty funny. It was pretty snarky to call it house, horse medicine. He likes snarky. to joke. He likes to joke. And what's the joke? 
the joke he's making and everybody in the friggin' world knows it is that we're stupid, you're stupid, the Trump people are stupid, and now we can grab you in too, Pierre, call you a Trump person if you want. We, we, everybody's stupid, black people are stupid. They can take it, that's the trouble with identity politics. They take any group and say, these are the stupid people, they're the problem. And you know what? That's history's most intolerable strategy, but it always fucking loses, pardon the French. No, and no, it's so okay. Ridicule is what they've been doing. They've yeah. been trying to ridicule anybody who yeah. favors any of these drugs, starting with anybody who was in Donald Trump was out for hydroxychloroquine. Anybody that favored him was anti-science. And Fauci became a saint as a result of that. Right, and so anybody else who spoke in favor of any uh, drug that was repurposed became considered anti-science, even though we have a group of really top scientists here Dr. Corey being one of them, but the rest of the doctors likewise, who have seen things, who have read things, who know what they're talking about. They observe, they're good doctors doing good doctoring. And the question is, do you deny this? Can you just say this is all political? This shouldn't be political at all. Well, two, two but they've effectively thoughts. used that. Two quick thoughts, Betsy. One is, is they're using the globalist playbook, which is which has gave rise to Trump Gays rise to Bernie Sanders, gays rise to the biggest anti-populist revolutions in history. And that playbook has never had as powerful a weapon for the populace to use that touches them so deeply as ivermectin and what's happening early treatments. They're playing with fire on a huge scale. And when you said earlier that, you know, journalists tend to look at the top, Pierre and Paul and Umberto and Joe and, and, and Jose and Fred are the top. And that, that's why I got into this because I thought, okay, when I was with the Philadelphia Inquirer, the, the um, you know, the, the, what was it, Legionnaire's disease happened long after I got there. But I did a 20th anniversary story about a, a, a you know, a, re, a young woman researcher at a professor at Hahnemann University Medical Center, two blocks from the office, who'd figured out through serum of her own blood how to cure or make a big breakthrough toward, uh, you know, curing that, that outbreak. So if we'd gotten the notice, the reporters were all hiding it now for the Washington Post, New York Times, and everywhere else, that a top researcher, a Pierre, right down the street, would we have written the story? Absolutely. But I think what happens is it got, it got global, it got international, it got like, I'm at the New York Times, I go talk to Fauci himself, and they just, and I talked to a lot of science writers, and I said, what the heck are you doing? I talked to the science writers at the Washington Post, Dallas Morning News, Philadelphia Inquirer, your buddy who was at MIT, who's won a Pulitzer Prize, your buddy who's the head, the head of the science writer organization for 20 years, and they all just said, what makes them sleep at night is this BS that they've been taught for 20 years that random controlled trials are the only science. And somehow we've got to break through and show them you're killing people with that. It's not close to true. If you get past that little you know, postage stamp idea, it's easy to destroy. It's kind of close to true. We have to do how, that. How can you do that with a fast moving disease that kills in a week or two? How can you demand a randomized controlled trial that's going to take months or years? All I, mean, I can say is I just hope that Mary Beth will keep writing for us because she's I've said several times, and she's not paying me to say that she wins the Pulitzer Prize if there's a normal world. And <laughs> she's so, been on it since the beginning, for sure. It, as soon as this ends, Teresa will be calling her and seeing what are you doing next. <laughs> hey, Betsy. Betsy, we, uh, we need this. We have questions. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Should we do a, 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 that we need the, these great studies to prove that ivermectin works? Um, fall flat because, you know, there's a different standard to which ivermectin is held. You've got this small yeah. nuclear there. I got it right. 
Um, you know, it's orphan drug. It's been around six or seven years. It's fine looking for a home. They have this in vitro study, just like they did with ivermectin that shows, okay, it has some, you know, benefit. It kills some of those little critters, those viruses. And they do one trial. Um, they don't even finish it up. They don't peer review it or publish it. And it's science by press release. And all of a sudden, just like with remdesivir, it's this standard of care, or it's at least on its way there. Um, I mean, it, it's yeah. stunning, right, Mary Beth? So, so uh, uh, ivermectin is hydroxychloroquine 2.0, and molnupiravir is remdesivir 2.0. I mean, it's <laughs> literally, they're both, I mean, they're both twins. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're going to get an, we're on our way to an emergency use authorization for molnupiravir. Um, and, you know, what do we know about it? Not, not very much. Well, and if it we, works, do, we, we do know a few things, right? We do know that the company, that uh, pharmaceutical company that was first developing it in 2003 abandoned it because they didn't think it was a good idea to bring a mutagen to market. They just didn't see the future so rosy for bringing a mutagenic drug, one that causes mutations that had high risk of causing, that did show uh, birth defects, uh, animals you know, without teeth and skulls, literally. And that's number one. Number two, we do know that two moderate disease uh, trials failed, right? In India, they stopped early because they failed. The hospital one failed. And so now you have this one little trial with no long-term safety, um, tons of exclusions, like almost anyone sexually active was excluded. Um, so good luck going to market with that. I guess everyone is just have to stop having sex so you can take your molnupiravir uh, to be cured of uh, COVID. I don't know. Here, when were those animals? And you uh, yeah. they, they were done well before in the, pa in, in, in the past. I mean, they, they were done years ago because uh, when this was first a whistleblower thing, you know, the, the, the people who were developing remdesivir, they asked the government for like several hundred million dollars in, in April of 2020. And that was shot down because the government had already invested a lot of money into its development. They knew that it was toxic and they said no. But then Merck bought up the company. They did whatever they did, and they developed it, did some trials, and now they're trying to ride into market with this one trial. The molinopure um, drug. Is yeah. that, um, is it, ivermectin is not mutagenic, is it? No, 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 not at all. The, the mechanisms are completely different. The, 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 it's not a mutagen, period. It does not work by, uh, by you know, causing mutation. Ivermectin does not cause mutations in the virus, or would it, nor would it cause mutations in human cells. The problem with um, molnupiravir is that it's well known to then be incorporated into human cells. So it's going to cause mutations. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why in their trial, it's right there in the trial, they did not want any woman of childbearing age in the trial, any man who's sexually active. I mean, they purposely left those out. Now, I don't know why they did because because they're not looking at, that, at long-term safety data. So you're going to literally have the FDA Given a UA to a drug that's a mutagen without long-term safety data. And literally no one's following up this drug, the people who took it, what their children are like, what their fertility is like, what their cancer rates are like. None of that is known, but yet it's going to ride into market. It's, it's absurd. absurd. So the, one the, is the one that had, uh, uh, you know, no sexually active people in it. 
The Molnupiru, yeah. In the trial, they excluded all anyone sexually active without contraception um, uh, was excluded. An ivermectin skeptic reporter I know said, oh, it's a flu drug, but it wasn't developed for the flu. It was developed for like cancer drugs and hepatitis, right? Molnupiravir originally, um, I'm not sure actually what its original intent was, um, but it, it was it's known as an antiviral. And I do believe it has antiviral properties for sure. I just don't think it's, it's nearly as effective as- Yeah, they were um, gonna use it against chikungunya and um, some yeah, of the other- yeah, yeah. And I actually think it definitely does, have, it, it's definitely effective against viruses, but it, it's, it's such a limited uh, window. You'd have to use it really early. Um, I think it has it has long term effects which are really scary. It doesn't have the safety profile of ivermectin. It doesn't have the anti inflammatory properties of ivermectin. And, and it looks like it's going to sail through. Um, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. you mentioned you mentioned the opioid epidemic um, before, and I did a lengthy series, uh, you know, ten years ago or, or so, and that entire epidemic was born out of a 250 word letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine about a study that somebody had done. I think there were 200 people in the study and only 1% uh, percent of people became addicted. We knew for years and years and years that opioids were terribly addictive. Um, and the pharmaceutical industry took that study and ran with it. They funded it to the hilt. They had luncheons for doctors. This is really great stuff. You should give it to your, your patients. And I interviewed patients who month after month after month, two minute visit to the doctor's office, here you go, you're still in pain, you get your, your script. And we were having what, 20, 30,000 deaths a year um, the prescription overdoses, as well as the people who later went on to fentanyl and heroin, and it happened. So we're on a continuum here. This isn't something new where they bought and paid for medicine. No, no, the, the rapaciousness, you know, the, the, the many transformations I've undergone in the past year is, is the knowledge of how rapacious that industry is. They don't care. They will stop at nothing. They don't care. I mean, when you look at like when I was a, a high, in high school, I graduated in 1988 from high school. If in my four years of high school, I think I went to one funeral of, of a kid who got uh, hit by a car. Nowadays in the United States, the average, co average high school senior goes to between four and six funerals in just their senior year alone. Really? Because of that many people dying from opioids. And yet we pretend this is business as usual and that this is normal. It's not. It started with the pharmaceutical companies and, and they, they're the ones who unleashed opiates into society and, and people are dying in droves and they don't care. People are dying in droves of COVID. They don't care. They want to make money and they want to do it with this idiotic drug, Molnupiravir. It's, it's, and people lap it up. And, and you see the, the fawning in the media. Oh, miracle drug, Molnupiravir, literally fawning. I can't wait to watch Sanjay Gupta talk about what a great drug it is and what a game changer it is. And then Fauci coming out with this idiotic, uh, insane nonsense. I mean, unbelievable. And by the way, did anyone talk about the video I played tonight on national television, Fauci coming out? There's no clinical evidence. Are you kidding me? He's literally propagating misinformation. So, so any of your friends, Mary Beth, who still believe that they can trust the generals, um, really, it, it's it's 
I, they're, they're all just being manipulated. You can't well, trust you know, them. Those alphabet agencies, NIH and CDC and FDA, they get their power from Congress, don't they? I mean, they're funded by Congress. They right. write the regulations. They pass the laws. So where is Congress in this The picture? problem is, I, I happen to know, uh, again, I'm, I, I don't even want to talk about my political affiliation because it's irrelevant, but I've talked to a lot of folks who uh, most people are mobilized against the agencies right now are on the right, and they're just not in power right now. And they can't wait to get in power so they can correct this. But because the left is implicitly trusting of the agencies, they're much more trusting of government. And so they're, they have the political support right now. I think that will change. But again, I don't want to get too much into politics, but, but I got to tell you, the, the, the right who has been most attacking of the policies, the injurious policies, the suppression of early treatment, um, they don't have the power. They don't have, they don't have control of the committees. They can't write the legislation. I mean, they, they, they're, they're powerless. I wonder, though, if the tables were turned and a Republican was in the White House We'd have it would be the same. You're, you're absolutely, you're absolutely correct. Let's say, yeah. let's say you had a Republican president who mm -hmm. had someone in the agencies or whatever, and they were, it wouldn't make a difference. They would be very supported by their, I totally agree. I, I don't think politics is the answer at, at, at all, but um, I, I do say that at, at this point, on one side, they're the ones who are really challenging the status quo from the agencies and they're correct. Why don't we take some questions? We've got a lot of good questions, folks. Um, one, one here that's very interesting from Robert Acker is, why not do your own medical journal and publish all those retracted studies? That's for you, Pierre. <laughs> Quick question. So um, what was his name, Robert? Robert Acker. Yeah, Robert. So I'm going to clear my schedule <laughs> and I'm going to start working on building a new medical. And that's not making fun of the question, but actually the question is good. The, the, actually, I'll give you a better answer is that um, we are. So, um, you know, when it was mentioned earlier, I mean, I have colleagues now all across the world. There are organizations that are very similar to the FLCCC in every single country. And for some reason, we just all know each other. Um, there's the World Council for Health, which was started by Tess Laurie, which now has 63 member organizations from around the world. The, all of us like-minded, we just want pragmatic, sound medical advice uh, directed at the population with no conflicts of interest, no funding influences. We just want good, hard, clean medicine. And so we have that council and there are a couple of people like, I know uh, Hector Carvalho, I think he already started the journal. In fact, I'm pretty sure I'm on the editorial board, but again, you know, starting a journal and having it about these principles, um, they still control that sphere. It's not going to be a high impact uh, journal yet. I think maybe when we come out of this and people realize that I'm going to keep using this analogy that the generals were lying, um, maybe they'll listen to some new voices and some new journals and they'll look to them for truth. Um, I just don't think we're there yet, but the journal is out there. Um, it's just, you know, it's not the New England Journal. I mean, those brand and those power structures are so ingrained. Um, yeah. Here's another one for you, Pierre. Your tweet, uh, this is from M. Pryor. Uh, your tweet on members of Congress getting ivermectin from a colleague is a hot topic on social media. On Clubhouse, the question has been asked, does he have proof? Um, 
so do I have proof? I mean, well, in the sense, do I have the medical records and the, the pharmacy disbursements of all those members of Congress? No, I don't have that kind of proof. Um, but but it, I mean, it, it's it's very clear that many in Congress were treated. I mean, I, I, I know the physician who treated all of them. Uh, there's no reason for, for that person to lie. Um, they, they would prefer to remain anonymous, which I understand. Um, no, but it's very clear. And many of the people who were treated have been advocating for early treatment. I mean, listen, I am not aligned politically with anyone, um, but uh, I will say that, you know, Mike mentioned the two testimonies that I gave in Congress. Both of, the, both of those testimonies were in the invitation of a senator who's very much on the right, in fact, very much on the far right, who's happens to have been very much um, disturbed, almost like Mary Beth was, that she noticed that this early treatment was being ignored. And so the, the Republicans have really been focusing on that. They've written numerous letters to the agencies, to Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci, asking them for emails, asking for them about their discussions on early treatment. And so, so many of them have advocated. In fact, I've been asked by some Congress people uh, to... to um, uh, to treat members of their family uh, and to get them ivermectin. And, and again, like I said, I have a colleague who's done the same. Um, I think the, on the, the very few are on the left. The only thing I'd say, do I have proof or not? I, whatever. I, I don't really care about that. All I, right. I do uh, what, what I would interject here is if uh, there's anybody listening who um, knows who this doctor is, um, I've spoken to Pierre about this. I'd like to write this story <laughs> about um, this doctor who has treated many people in Congress. I'd like to find out who some of them are. So please contact me. Um, Michael, we should go for this story. In we'll, a big print it. we'll print it, Mary Beth. A series. There you go. Now here's a, here's a good question from Dr. Cindy Marsden. It says, I believe malpractice carriers are not going to underwrite policies if we prescribe ivermectin. I've been asked detailed questions about what I treat COVID with. Your opinion? You know, my opinion is nothing would shock me. The, the level of absurdity and the lengths that they go and the amount of power that is being held. Um, this war on ivermectin, I detailed some of them. Like I said, I have more slides. If you want me to put on how malpractice insurers are going after doctors who prescribe ivermectin, clearly seems reasonable to me. They will stop at nothing. They, you know, those who can have the power can influence them. I mean, we already know that their medical boards have jumped in and they're just like investigating doctors. We've gotten letters from health insurers saying, you know, but most of it's just scare tactics. Um, those who have gotten investigated, the actual investigators themselves, they say like, there's really nothing here because they can see all the evidence and like, there's no way they can really reprimand or take someone's license um, uh, at a medical board level because there's just so much evidence to show that what we're doing is effective and safe if you really look at the evidence. Um, and so a lot of it's scare tactics and it's working. A lot of doctors are influenced. I think they, they don't want to go be investigated by the board. It's their livelihood. Even, I mean, even myself, I mean, as I support my family, I've already had two, two letters of complaint against me to the medical board as a, as a medical misinformationist and the, uh, misinformationist and the board wants me to defend myself. Um, because you have been talking about ivermectin. Is that yeah, I'm a medical misinformationist. 
Okay. Um, well, let's see. Sharon Cairns asked a question, but I think we've already answered that. She says, I'm from England. Our UK government is starting today, saying that they will soon start using the new Merck antiviral. Is this safe, especially for our most vulnerable citizens? You've I think it's it, it seems to be acutely safe per the press release. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, literally, how do I answer a question when all I have is a press release to go on? So I, who knows? I don't think it's I don't think it has long term safety. I, I just it has such a checkered past and it has such a small window of efficacy um, that that it, it, its safety is is nowhere near that of ivermectin and its efficacy is nowhere near that of ivermectin. Ivermectin works in all phases. I, I just um, I, I just don't know what to say about Molnupiravir. Here's another medical question. I'm, the questions generally tend to be medical. Uh, this is from Katie Lloyd. She says, I'm on day seven of COVID. I did the eye mask protocol and felt really well after five days, but now I have fatigue and headache, but no other symptoms. Do I just have to ride this part out? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, this, yeah, even when you, so yes, basically, COVID's a bitch. <laughs> you know, it really will leave people with, with fatigue and headaches. And it, yeah, it becomes a very prolonged illness. This is no joke, COVID. It really can uh, mess with people. I mean, um, I generally continue the ivermectin, although I, I don't know how much more it can do. Usually it takes away the fever, um, uh, uh, the, the, the early on, the fever, the headaches, the sinusitis, those will all go away quickly. But many people are left with fatigue that takes days to weeks to recover from. So, yeah. And Annie Saltz wants to know, what is the risk of receiving a blood transfer sourced from a vaccinated person? Will the unvaccinated receiver get the stuff from the vaccine into their body? So I, I really don't know. That's a bit outside of my lane. Um, I will. I do know that um, in some not insignificant amount of people, right, the spike protein is circulating in the body. So you could assume that it's in the blood. Um, and so you could be at risk of getting spike protein via transfusion, whether it would be at, a, at an inoculum size to cause illness or would it be protective? I don't know. I, I got to say, it's a little bit outside my wheelhouse. Here's another one. And then I think that we'll have last two questions. Rebecca Dollar says, my husband went for a physical recently. The doctor asked why he was taking ivermectin. My husband didn't disclose that we were taking it prior to the, <coughs> the doctor asking that. How did the doctor know? She says, I'm in Florida. And this also happened to a friend in Georgia. Um, so farm, so, uh, in my prior outpatient clinic, our pharmacist could look up, uh, local pharmacy records. So if you were filling it somewhere, they could find that out. Um, that's something that pharmacists, so I don't know, maybe the nurse or the pharmacist of the doctor was looking at their most recent refills and what they're on. Um, I, I know my pharmacist could find that out. In fact, you know, sometimes we, we needed to know if a patient was taking the medicine or not, and they'd be able to tell me, oh, they haven't filled this in a few months. And, you know, and then I'd have to ask my patient, you know, hey, I noticed you're not taking this, you know, why, you know, and just trying to optimize their care. That's all. But yeah, I think that information's uh, available. 
Stuart Tankersley wants to know, can you comment on Dr. Robert Malone's assertion that this winter is going to be very bad in terms of the severity of COVID? Did you see last winter? So if you saw, um, if you looked at the summer of 2020 and the summer of 2021, uh, it, it, that was brutal. This summer was more brutal than last one. Um, and so you could argue that if, and last winter was the wickedest, right? And you guys remember that surge in December and January, I mean, it's absolutely wicked. I mean, we've never hit that peak since. Um, so one could argue we might be looking at another one like that. The only caveat is natural immunity we know is highly effective. And so uh, the number of naturally immune U.S. citizens are increasing. So maybe we won't see it as bad as last winter, but certainly out of the whole pandemic, last winter was the worst out of everything. I mean, there, there's nothing. I mean, if you look at those those case counts and deaths, nothing compares to last uh, December, January. It was absolutely brutal. So, I mean, it's a seasonal. You know, so much of these shifts and changes we know are seasonal. You know, same thing. Like, like the other thing. Like the, the other narrative. And I, I don't want to get too much into vaccines, but I, I do want to talk about censorship and the fact that no one is openly allowed to discuss the vaccines, the efficacy, what their impact truly is on the pandemic. All you hear is safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. Well, then, for instance, why aren't there any credible discussions of to, as to why? we had two to three times the case counts this summer than last summer. And in between, we had 300 million vaccine doses, right? Can't discuss that. Um, I, it, I don't know, the whole, the whole thing's bizarre. The whole thing's bizarre. And in Uttar Pradesh, they didn't have a problem and they had yeah. almost very few vaccinated, right? Very few vaccinated. No. <clears throat> Folks, we're, we have to wrap it up here. And I'm, we have one last question from Kathy Blackmore says, since PayPal is down on FLCCC's website, how else can we donate? Pierre, that's the question for you. No, no, no. So, so we have we have a system in place that we'd always sort of had, but um, our executive director, Kelly Booman, just did a heroic job. When that went down, um, she got our system up and running and uh, we're alive and well and taking donations. And lest I forget, this comes to the donation appeal portion of this program. <laughs> I will get in trouble by all my colleagues who uh, we do we do need to stay alive and we are fighting. If you couldn't tell, guys, if you watch any of this program, we're fighting an effing global war. Um, the pockets of the other side are incalculable. They literally are in the trillions. Um, so anyway, help us. Uh, we, we've actually added some staff now. We've added some uh, really, I would say, uh, skill positions in our organization. Um, and we're trying to turn into even more of an assassin than we've been. And, and, but it all costs money, it really does. Um, and so um, please help us. Um, and if you can't help us, ask your friends to help us. Uh, ask your rich parents to help us. Um, or your well-off, you know, offspring. You, on and on and on and on. Yeah. And then ask Pharma. Ask Pharma for grants for the FLCCC. Maybe you guys could there apply like... Pfizer and, uh, you know, I'm sure they'll help us. Thank yeah. you for all you do, FLCCC. Thank you, Pierre. Thank you. Thank oh. you, Mary Beth. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Beth. Yes. And
thank you, Mike, for all that you're doing. And with well, Teresa you. as well, your wife, who is the yes, editor there. Thank you both. Wonderful. Awesome. Mike, can you can you tell the audience about your Substack, how to find it, where to get to like good, accurate, interesting. Oh, we got that. I've got that in my script, but please oh, go ahead. You can do it. Uh, well, you do it first. Much better voice, but uh, it's rescue.substack.com. And if that doesn't come up, it should come up in Google or whatever, or DuckDuckGo. You just go to Substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. And there's all kinds of newsletters there. It's both a newsletter and, and you just type in rescue and it comes right up. It says rescue with Michael Capuzzo. My wife is in charge really with me, but they had me put my name on it to sell books or something. I don't know. And uh, um, we, we it's a newsletter. So you sign up for free and we send... Um, you know, we sent Mary Beth's incredible story and another story about her last week and three or four stories last week and sometimes more, sometimes less. And, you know, we there's going to be big, um, uh, you know, chances for, for threads for people to, you know, help each other with doctors and pharmacists, etc. And it's also a website. So uh, that's it. And we're going to be featuring Mary Beth as much as humanly possible. And by the way, Mary Beth already wrote 21 articles on ivermectin uh, that she did for Trial Site News, and she's got those on her website, thefirstepidemic.com. We've got it on the screen now, thefirstepidemic.com for all of Mary Beth's past writing on ivermectin, and of course, rescue.substack.com for everything Mike's doing and, and uh, Mary Beth's latest, and a lot of good writing, a lot of good writing and by good reporters who are covering everything. And folks, we just also want to say, keep telling us my story. Uh, we, we want to have more. We're posting on social media. We've got some on the website. We're going to be doing more videos because these testimonials are powerful and good. And they are the truth of what happened to people who have had these medicines that are inexpensive and available and good and have worked with the IMAS Plus protocol and, and mask, uh, Math Plus rather in the hospitals and that have saved lives. We Thank you for, we want you to tell your stories. Overcoming pharmacy barriers, that's a document we have that if you're having trouble getting your medicine, uh, go to the website, it's on there and right on the front page, it's high up, you can see everything you need to know and download the page and take it with you when you go to the pharmacy. You can make sure that you can say to the pharmacist, no, that's not right, <laughs> what you're telling me, here's what we can do. And also the other thing for doctors, and we have a lot of doctors on this call, the globalcovidsummit.org has that global declaration of, for doctors and doctors who really wanna care for patients and to not interrupt the doctor-patient relationship. Thousands, tens of thousands have signed already. Go there and you can sign. So there's a, there's a lot to do if you really care about the truth in medicine, and if you really care about uh, keeping the doctor-patient relationship the way it should be. That's it. We thank you all. It's been a great discussion, folks. Thank you. Thank you for reporting it. Thank you, thank you for doctoring. Thank you for doing it all. Thank you for being with us. We'll be back next week. Good night. Thank you. All right, guys. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.